This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the Bowtie Bandit of Blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Jeffrey Winters, Vice Chair of the Division of Transfusion Medicine at Mayo Clinic on the experimental treatment with convalescent plasma for COVID-19 that's being evaluated nationwide. So thanks for joining with us uh, today, Dr. Winters. Okay, well, it's my pleasure to be here. Can you get us started with kind of what's the why around convalescent plasma? Why are we spinning, spinning up these programs really across the country? So I think the first thing is, you know, we do not at this moment in time have uh, an effective treatment for this infection. Uh, there's lots of medications that are being considered, and I would put convalescent plasma into that category. Uh, so a therapeutic option that is being evaluated, it's... Again, I would say experimental, so we are still evaluating it. I can't say for certain, and I don't think anyone can say for certain, what the efficacy is. But the rationale behind it is that um, we know historically uh, from times when we didn't have uh, effective antivirals or antibacterials that, that people who had recovered from an illness had protective antibodies. They, they were not reinfected. And so people had done transfusions uh, of whole blood or plasma or um, serum um, to give that passive immunity, uh, to give those protective antibodies to the person infected. So this goes, you know, all the way back to including the 1918 uh, pandemic, where there were studies that looked at using convalescent plasma from people who had uh, recovered from influenza and giving it to them and seeing improvements. As we developed antibiotics and other therapies, the sort of thought of convalescent plasma sort of really no longer was in the, 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 the realm of, of the practice of medicine. It still existed because we still have those hyperimmune uh, globulin products out there, things like uh, uh, hyperimmune rabies globulin, uh, hepatitis B immune globulin, and things of that nature, which we can give to people who are exposed to those disorders. A little bit different because you concentrate the antibodies. I think more recently where convalescent plasma has been used actually is in the context of uh, SARS, so preceded this uh, particular uh, virus. So there were examples of convalescent plasma used to treat patients and, and appeared to be effective if they were caught early enough, as well as in the Ebola outbreak. So again, we heard of uh, people who had recovered from Ebola, then donating plasma, and then that being used to treat patients who were suffering from Ebola infections. And it, once again, there was evidence of efficacy in those particular disease processes. So again, uh, something that is old is new again, if you will, and we begin to look when we don't have an effective treatment at actually trying this out. I really like how you frame that for our listeners, Dr. Winters, and that, you know, we understand that we do have a history of, of working with convalescent plasma. It's not like it's a brand new therapy. Um, and then you also point out that it has worked with uh, other uh, coronaviruses, right? Because SARS was also uh, a coronavirus. And so there are some past experiences, but like uh, this is a new virus. And so we're going to be learning, uh, is plasma effective for, for this particular virus? I was wondering if you could kind of rotate now to think about, we have some physicians who listen to this podcast and if they are taking care of a patient and 
wanting to get this product, uh, how, how do they go about this? I think right. this is kind of a, a big unknown. And, and when physicians are finding themselves in that position, uh, sometimes it's, it's a flail because these are, are urgent situations. Right. So this is, again, an unlicensed product, meaning the FDA hasn't said, hey, this is a wonderful thing. You know, we've licensed this. We've approved this. Go forth and use it. Okay, so there are really three sort of routes by which somebody can um, essentially obtain um, and administer this product. And to be honest with you, the three routes have differing degrees of ease with which somebody can can do this. Uh, probably the most difficult route, and the one that I will mention first, is actually you design your own protocol, your own research protocol, and then you go forward to the FDA and you say, I'm going to give convalescent plasma to ventilator-dependent patients in the ICU, and I'm going to randomize between that and maybe people getting saline or maybe people getting regular plasma, and you come up with your own research protocol, go to the FDA, negotiate back and forth with them, and develop an IND, an investigational new drug or device application. They're going to give feedback. It's going to take probably in this day and age, uh, what I've been hearing from colleagues at institutions, weeks to do that. You can do that. It's going to be a lot of regulatory uh, upfront effort. It's going to be designing a research protocol. So that is probably the most labor intensive, complicated. You're going to need regulatory people at your institution. And you're really in that context looking to probably do a randomized controlled trial. The second option, which is not as complicated uh, and is much quicker, is an EIND or an emergency IND. And so what has happened is the FDA has defined certain criteria in patients, certain criteria in the donors and the products, and said, if you have a single patient and you want to give this drug on a compassionate use basis, in other words, you're saying, this person's going to die, we got to do something, and you want to give this product, then basically you do this emergency IND. It's online, it's logging into this web page, it's communicating with the FDA, filling out information. And from what I've heard from people, that in about two to four hours, you can turn around that EIND. You can get permission from the FDA to administer this product. Now, the kicker here is for that first way that I mentioned it to you, you, you were doing a clinical trial. So you can treat as many patients as you tell them they're going to treat on that clinical trial. For the EINDs, it's a one-off. So it's compassionate use for each patient. So every patient, you're going to have to do this. Once you have that EIND approval from the Food and Drug Administration, they're going to give you some paperwork. And then you're going to need to go to whoever your blood supplier is and say, can you provide me with convalescent plasma? And your blood supplier may or may not be able to do that. Now, they are going to want to see documentation that you have approval from the FDA to utilize this product before they send it to you. Okay. So... Again, it's sort of a one-off for every single patient you have to do that. And again, the FDA has defined certain criteria. Now, the third option is the expanded access protocol or the EAP. Now, what has happened is that the American Red Cross and the Mayo Clinic went to the FDA and we said, we would like to streamline this process. We would like to make it easier for people to have access to these products. And um, what we want to do is we want to collect some data. We want to collect some data on people. And so Mayo Clinic's IRB uh, reviewed a protocol 
and has signed off on it. The FDA has signed off on this protocol. And so a physician wanting to treat patients under the EAP, the emergency or the expanded access protocol, basically goes to a website and I can give you the URL. It's https colon forward slash forward slash uscovidplasma.org or uscovidplasma.org. Okay, get to that website, and then as a physician or as an institution, you can either register yourself or your institution to be a participant in the expanded access protocol. And then what you do is when you have a patient, so you can go and register your institution or yourself as a physician ahead of time. Okay, then when you have a patient, you go in and you register the patient. Say, okay, I'm going to treat this patient. You register the patient. You're going to get a patient uh, registration number that you can then take to either your blood supplier if they are participating in the EAP, or you can actually reach out to the American Red Cross who's working to do a little bit of matchmaking. In other words, they're looking to work to move products, not only products through the Red Cross system, but also products through uh, ABC, America's Blood Centers, and other independent blood collection uh, establishments. And again, to try to get product to those patients that are um, enrolled in the EAP. I will tell you right now, demand exceeds supply. We're still working on that. Um, supply is ramping up, production is ramping up, but even if you just enroll in the EAP, it still doesn't necessarily mean that your patient might, will, will get the blood products. Um, you're probably not gonna get them otherwise. Now, by enrolling in the EAP, you are making a commitment that you are going to participate in research. So there is some data that you will have to provide back about the patient. You will also have to provide information at four hours after transfusion, did they experience any adverse effects to the transfusion? And then there's additional data sheets and data collection that again, needs to be done online uh, at day seven and day 30 that are looking at um, outcomes in the patients and their response to the therapy. Um, so it's uh, not a randomized trial. The hope is that at some point in time, we're going to try to match patients based on certain characteristics with patients who didn't receive the convalescent plasma, again, to get to an answer with regard to efficacy. In the EAP, the criteria with regard to the severity of illness is a bit broader than what one sees with regard to the EIND, where really they are critically uh, ill patients, whereas in the expanded access protocol, it can be, you know, individuals who are at risk for ending up in the ICU but haven't gotten there yet, hospitalized with maybe adverse uh, factors that would predict that they're going to get really ill. For more COVID-19 education resources, visit mayocliniclab.com forward slash education dash COVID dash 19. Just to clarify, uh, with the, um, you mentioned the three routes, the making your own research uh, protocol, which I can understand. Uh, if you go through that step, you could define whatever treatment uh, schedule you're interested in researching. Uh, how about for the EIND and the expanded access protocol? Uh, so expanded access protocol and the emergency IND, how many products does that get for a, a given patient? 
So for the EIND, it's whatever you request and your blood supplier is willing to provide you. Now, I'll be honest with you, I told you supply is limited. So most places uh, are not sending you, you know, if you ask for 10 units, they're probably going to laugh at you and you're probably going to get one. Um, for the expanded access protocol, it is a protocol. And so within the protocol, it is defined as a total dose of 200 to 440 mLs of plasma into the patient. Okay, so what that really ends up meaning is one to two units of plasma. And most institutions involved in the EAP are administering one unit of plasma. To be honest with you, again, most of the time that's all that their provider is going to be willing to cut loose for a given patient because uh, supply at this point is still limiting. I think that really underscores this important point about since, like you say, demand exceeds supply, folks that are out there listening can help kind of promote this message that demand is exceeding supply for convalescent plasma nationally. And um, is the recommendation, should we direct people that are interested in, um, you know, can I be a donor or how do I go about being a donor? Is that uscovidplasma.org, is that the website to send them to to find out that information? So there are, th uh, there are two websites, well, actually three websites that I would refer people to. One is uscovidplasma.org. So if you go to that website, there is information there for potential donors. So there is a form that they can fill out, uh, provide some information, give permission to give some information. And then once again, that's going to try to hook them up with somebody, a local collector who's participating in the EAP. A second resource is a web page uh, that has been created by AABB, the American Association of Blood Banks. That is covidplasma.org. So drop the U.S. off of it. Okay, covidplasma.org. Uh, once again, that has uh, information more blood collector focused. But once again, donors can go in there. There's a frequently asked questions page. There's information. There's, again, ways that donors can sign up and be directed to other sites to donate. And then the final website that really has an awful lot of information. So if somebody really wants to learn about the history of convalescent plasma, learn about the protocols, learn about it, really good website is ccpp19.org. COVID Convalescent Plasma Project 19. Org. So that's what the CCPP it has nothing to do with the former Soviet Union. Okay, some people thinking that. But, and we'll uh, definitely make sure to put all three of those uh, websites in the show notes so that our listeners can easily drop down and, and click on uh, the relevant uh, links. Can you give uh, our listeners uh, an idea about what are some, at least some broad strokes around who yeah. would be eligible to donate convalescent plasma? Yeah, so um, again, it needs to be obviously, goes without saying, but maybe it needs to be said anyway, it has to be somebody who's recovered from COVID-19 infection. So I'll be honest, we've had people showing up that say, you know, hey, last uh, June I got sick while I was canoeing in the boundary waters and I think it must have been uh, coronavirus, I wanna donate. No, not really. So what we're really looking for are um, individuals who have actually been diagnosed and tested positive on the nasopharyngeal PCR swab. So sticking the, the swab up the nose, okay? So at this point in time, what the criteria are is if you are between 14 and 27 days from resolution of your symptoms and have had one negative nasopharyngeal PCR, you, you can donate, okay? 
Now, if you had a diagnosis and it's been 28 days or more beyond resolution of your symptoms, then you can come in and donate. From a diagnostic standpoint, if somebody was ill, they didn't get a chance to get the uh, PCR assay because they weren't a healthcare worker, it wasn't available wherever they are, I will foresee in the future as we're starting to roll out the um, antibody assays, the various and sundry EIAs looking for an immune response, that we will start seeing people coming in saying, I think I had this, or maybe they'll come in and say, yeah, I had it. I didn't have the PCR, but they did the EIA and I have antibodies. We'll start seeing those people donating. And from the calls that I've been on, many of the blood centers are beginning to move in that route, but we're a little hamstrung by the fact that you know, we're really just now starting to roll that testing out, and it's, it's pretty limited at this point in time, but, but that's where we're headed. And then, of course, they have to fulfill the criteria for blood donation, okay? So you can't have done naughty things that put you at risk for transmitting other diseases via transfusion. So occasionally blood donors think in emergency situations that a lot of those other rules will be waived. Um, and in this context, that is not the case. I think it's important for everybody to still understand that Convalescent plasma is a, is a manufactured uh, product, and so just like any other company making a drug, we're, we're still held to those same standards. We have a lot of students that are going to be listening to this, also certainly people in the lab. I was wondering if you, if we could just have you reflect for a minute about what are some lessons learned from you, uh, for your perspective, as you've kind of navigated this COVID-19, I mean, it's a very dynamic situation. Mm. Uh, the lab is sometimes not the most uh, easy to turn on a dime. What have you taken away so far? A couple of things. Um, the first one, which I told you earlier, far too many people know my email and phone number. That's one thing I've learned because I've been spending most of my days trying to answer questions about convalescent plasma. Uh, I think um, some interesting things that I've learned or some, some, some um, experiences I've had is I have been absolutely amazed at the speed with which this has been brought online, to be honest with you. There have been a number of people in uh, laboratory medicine, uh, in blood banking and transfusion medicine, who really said, we need to do something and we need to do something now and we need to move quickly. And traditionally, for those of you that work in the lab, and especially for those of you that work in blood banking and transfusion medicine, we're rather ponderous. We do not move quickly. Um, we double, triple check, and validate everything. Given the urgency uh, in this circumstance, uh, you know, it's, it's incredible that this sort of infrastructure came together, coalesced out of some interested parties, people at um, Johns Hopkins, people at Mayo, people at University of Washington, and other institutions around the country, really got together and began pushing hard. And the FDA has shown a great deal of flexibility, quickly moving to help define criteria, to define the rules by which we could operate and begin to collect this, I'm going to say, potentially life-saving product because we still have to determine that. So, you know, that's been one of the things that I've learned that we can move quickly when we need to do so. The other key, though, about all of this is we do still need to follow all those good manufacturing practices, all those quality system essentials, all those regulatory requirements that are in place 
in order to ensure the uh, purity, potency, and efficacy of these products and the safety. Because again, we don't want to harm somebody. So we need to be thoughtful and careful as we do move forward, even though we're moving quite rapidly. So that's been one of the things that's, that, that's really uh, surprised me is the speed with which we got this online and the fact that we are all working together. I'll be honest, it's been amazing seeing the independent blood collection centers and the Red Cross working together, the um, hospital-based blood centers working together with everybody. It gives me hope for the future that if we can work together so um, diligently and without conflict and without worrying about who's going to pay for what and who's going to get reimbursed and you're collecting in my area and I'm not going to send my donors to your center and yada, yada. If we, if we can do that, then that, that fills me with hope for the future. That's brilliant. I think, and I'm really excited about probably that second loop of learning that's going to happen after we kind of pass through this immediate phase. And, you know, uh, we were able to make this happen for this situation. Uh, how do we need to uh, adapt our system so that we can be better off in the, in the future? So there's, there's some other things that I think are, are being built to deal with um, actually getting donors to the right place that uh, some, some apps, some websites, and some other things that I hope will also in the future lower some barriers for those people looking to donate blood. I mean, once we're done with collecting COVID convalescent plasma, some of this infrastructure could be utilized um, simply for recruitment and redirecting blood donors where we need. So, so my hope is that, that those, those resources will continue to be maintained and available and, and utilized by everybody, again, working together. The other day uh, when I was in-house working, uh, vetting out uh, new donors for convalescent plasma, one of the questions was, have you been a blood donor in the past? And we've had several that were, but some that weren't. And for each one of those people that, that weren't, it was kind of a quick, silent prayer to myself that uh, in the future, they continue to, to join and be part of our blood donor community that we have. So we've been rounding with Dr. Winters talking about the convalescent plasma program at Mayo Clinic. Thank you for taking the time to discuss this topic with us, Dr. Winters. So be sure to check out uh, those three websites that Dr. Winters pointed us out to. So ccpp19.org, covidplasma.org, and uscovidplasma.org. Again, all three of those are going to be in the show notes. For information concerning the historical use of convalescent plasma, as well as the current COVID-19 protocols, information on how to donate, and also information about concerning that expanded access protocol that we've been talking about, and how to enroll as a physician or a hospital. So thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.